When you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This morning, I I want us to see that salvation is a gracious work of God, freeing us from bondage to death by raising us to life with Christ. This is what God does in salvation in the life of his people. And so as we as we see this this hand of of God at work in our salvation, I want us first to understand humanity's condition without Christ. Because if we're going to really comprehend what God has done for us in Christ through the grace of God, then we must first understand what he uh, what our condition was like without Christ before him. And so there's a great contrast in in verses 1 and 3 and verses 4 and 7. And the difference that we see in this contrast between the first three verses and the last four verses of our text this morning, it's as different as night and day, as as light and as darkness. And so the first truth we come to in verses 1 through 3 is this, that spiritual death is a condition that affects all. All humanity, every person, verse 1, states man's condition right out of the gate. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. The word for dead is the word that's used here of, of corpse. But here Paul doesn't mean a physically dead person. He means one who is spiritually dead. The language he uses is somewhat of a, it offers us a a paradox. We know that a dead person is without physical life. But look at what he says about this spirit, about this dead person in verse 2. He says, among whom we all once lived, right? I'm sorry, in verse 2 he says, in which you once walked. In verse 3 he says, among whom we all once lived. We get this this metaphor of the dead person living and, and walking. The language he uses causes us to look deeper into what does he mean here in which you once walked, among whom we all once lived. How can one who is dead live? Before there was a cure for leprosy, it was a scourge of the ancient world. Those who contracted the disease would have to announce when they were walking in the town, they would have to say, unclean, unclean, as they were walking in town. And it was the same as declaring dead man walking. See, a person who contracted leprosy received the equivalent of a death sentence. Outside of a miraculous healing from God, they were hopeless. And spiritually speaking, Paul means for us to understand this about our own spiritual condition outside of Christ, that we are spiritually 
dead without Christ. In verse 3, he clarifies, though, that he's not just speaking to those who are part of the church in Ephesus. He's speaking of all people, of all time, everywhere. In verse 3, he says, among whom we all once lived. Indicating that this condition, it's not just for the Gentiles, but it's for all people. This spiritual death that he's describing has touched Every one of us, all of us have been touched by, all of humanity have been touched by spiritual death. In fact, Paul would argue that we are born spiritually dead. The reason is due to our trespasses and sins. Your translation, instead of trespass, may use the word transgression, but it's the same word for trespass. And it speaks to our very nature as sinful human beings. Our trespasses refers to our individual acts of sin. And then the word sin really refers to the the scope of our condition. What I think is important to recognize here is it's important to recognize that the sin nature handed down to us through Adam and Eve certainly is something that we are born with, but it's equally important to realize that we ourselves have sinned against God and we have merited our own condemnation. And that's what Romans chapter 6 verse 23 speaks to when he says the wages of sin is death. You see, the reality is I'm responsible for rejecting God. You're responsible for rejecting God. Every human, every man, woman, boy and girl are responsible for rejecting God. Every one of us has sinned against God. That's the truth of Romans 3.23, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This speaks to the nature of our condition, that we are sinners, that we have offended God's holiness, and because of our sin, we are justly condemned as children of wrath, as he says in a few moments. And because of this, we're without hope. We're like the hopeless, unclean leper running into the city saying, unclean, unclean, dead man walking. We're dead men walking, dead women walking. This spiritually dead condition is common to all of humanity at one point in our lives. And he goes on to tell us why. And I want us to see why, secondly, all who are spiritually dead are in bondage to three influences which are hostile to God. There are three influences which are hostile to God that he points out to us in verses 2 and 3. And the first one is the world. In our spiritual deadness, he says, we walk following the course of this world. You see, this speaks to the the powerful influence of culture and society which shapes our behavior. It shapes our attitudes, our morals, our ethics, and our preferences. All of which, when aligned with the world, are foreign to God's way. Alien to God's standard of holiness. You see, the way of the world is anti-God. We could cite numerous examples throughout history, even current events that barely scratch the surface of what we're speaking to here. From infanticide in China to India 
across the globe, from human trafficking to the atrocities of the genocides of history, to the sexual revolution, to people calling bad good and good bad. The list could go on and on, but here's the thing, church. All of these points push us and press the believer to guard his or her life. This is why Paul exhorts us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, right? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. As believers, we must be careful to develop a biblical worldview. That means to search the Scripture that we might be given wisdom and understanding through the Holy Spirit in the knowledge of God's ways. As we saw last week, this comes to the believer and it comes through prayer and it comes through studying God's Word and reading and meditating on God's Word. It comes in living in community. It comes in praying for one another as believers. The first deadly influence is the world. But there's a second deadly influence he points out here. And the second deadly influence is the devil. He says, not only were you following the course of this world, but you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, before Christ, this is so key for us to understand, church. Before Christ, we were in bondage as sons of disobedience under the supernatural rule and authority of Satan. Do you see that? in which you once walked following the course of this world, listen, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see what happens when we're adopted, as he says in chapter 1, verse 5, this adoption as God calls us out of darkness into, into light, into his kingdom. And now we become children of God when we're saved by the gracious work of God. But before that, we are children under wrath. And that's what Paul's making this distinction in this contrast that he's making it so that we would see those who are in Christ are no longer in this status. But he's saying, remember what you were. Remember where you came from. Remember the grace of God at work in your life to transform you and to turn you from being a son of disobedience to now being an adopted child of God with a new nature. So as a prince of the power of the air, The devil rules over a host of evil spirits. That's why Paul says to the believer in chapter 4, verse 27, to give no opportunity for the devil. He's encouraging the believer to put the old man to death. And he says in 6.12, right? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, just as God rules the kingdom of light, his kingdom, Satan rules the kingdom of darkness. And according to Paul, there's no middle kingdom. There's only one ba- there's only a battle for which kingdom a person is a part of. This doesn't mean that all who are not in Christ are possessed by demons or evil spirits. That's not what I'm saying this morning. Rather, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, he says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And in Colossians 1.13, it indicates for those who are in Christ that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, listen, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So the two deadly influences, one, the world, number two, the devil. And you see, the only way for us to be liberated from our bondage to the kingdom of darkness is through Christ, who gives us spiritual life. All who are not in Christ are sons of disobedience, Paul says. And so salvation is God's gracious work, whereby he frees us from bondage to death, and he raises us to life with Christ. The third deadly influence, or hostile Influence to God in our lives before Christ is the flesh. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, right? Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. This characterizes the former life of the believer. Every one of us possessed or really was possessed by the fallen, self-centered human nature. It was intrinsic within us. We were rebels against God. So incidentally, the next time someone says, the devil made me do it, you can look at him and say, I don't think so. You see, inherent within us, even as we sang earlier, prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love, right? This describes the inward nature of man. And it's only through a relationship with Christ that that inward nature is turned and transformed. He talks about the passions of our flesh, that is the the carnal appetites of our self-will, immorality, anger, envy, rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, all of these things that, that crop up within the person. And what he's saying is this was the unregenerate dominating outlook of our lives before Christ. Even our thoughts were corrupt. And because because of that, we were dead in bondage. We stood condemned. We were by nature children of wrath. I think what Paul is trying to help us see is that until we know the depth of our bondage and our imprisonment, we won't truly appreciate the heights of our new position in Christ. Paul takes us from the depths of our condition in verses 1 through 3 to the heights of the believer's new position in Christ in verses 4 through 7. But before we leave verses 1 through 3, let me encourage you this morning. If these first three verses describe where you're at in your life now, spiritually dead, without Christ, under the domain of darkness, following the prince of the power of the air, open to the schemes of the world. Let me encourage you this morning to surrender your life to Christ, to confess your sins before the Lord, to surrender your life to Him and to follow Him. And to be moved from a child of disobedience and by nature children of wrath 
to be moved from one who is dead and trespasses and sins to be moved to a new position in Christ, as verse 4 states. You see, the believer's position in Christ is shown in verses 4 through 7. Verse 4 begins with a big statement. And that big statement is, but God. In fact, in verses 1 through 7, there's one sentence in this Greek text. And he he reserves the main subject of the sentence until verse 4. The main subject is God. And he he, he reserves the main verb of the sentence until verse 5. And you know what that main verb is? Can you guess what the main verb is there in verse 5? Made us alive. Put it together. But God made us alive. You see, here's the work that God has done. Here's the initiative of God. We see God's love displayed through his rich mercy toward us. God has made us alive. And through his rich mercy, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You see, God doesn't give us what our hopeless deadly condition deserves. Instead, because of his great love, he lavishes his grace upon us in salvation. God is the one who takes the initiative to save. He holds the power of salvation. He alone can rescue, can resurrect the physically dead. And he alone can resurrect the spiritually dead. And so in verses 1 through 3... We see that man is responsible for rebellion and for rejection of God. But in verses 4 through 7, we see that God is responsible for reconciliation and salvation of man. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, which is a tremendous book. If you've not read it, I would highly recommend it. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. What I want us to see is the first thing that we need to note about our position in Christ is this. Verse 5, we are alive in Christ. We are alive with Christ, rather. See, God's love is a light which dispels the darkness of our bondage to death. Even while we were dead in our trespasses, it says there in verse 5, right? He made us alive together with Christ. Christ's death on the cross paid the ransom for our redemption. God forgave our sin by pouring out His wrath on Christ instead of on us. And by confessing our sins and believing upon Christ, we are forgiven and we are set free. See, we're born again from spiritual death to spiritual life. This is the unmerited gift of God. This is the salvation that Paul is speaking about. I think the story of Lazarus and John 11, the miracle of Lazarus and John 11, gives us a great picture of what God has done for us in Christ. Lazarus was dead in the tomb. Four days, undoubtedly, unquestionably dead. He was unable to hear. He was unable to respond. He was unable to move. He couldn't rise from his death. 
And Jesus stands before the tomb and announces the good news of the gospel to him. He says what? Lazarus, come forth. And at that point, Lazarus came forward from the tomb. You see, what Jesus did physically for Lazarus by the power of his word, he also does spiritually for the believer by the power of his word. Maybe this morning you're hearing Jesus' call for the first time, like he called Lazarus. Come forth. And your response needs to be a response of coming forward to life. Is God at work in your life? Is he at work this morning in your life? Is he calling you to confess your sin before him? To receive new life? Listen, you don't have to be good enough to get, and get everything together before you come to God. You simply need to answer his call and surrender your life. <clears throat> because the reality is this. You must be born again. You must be born From spiritual death into spiritual life. Because here's why. Jesus Christ died to free mankind from bondage to death. Have you been freed from bondage to death? Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Have you confessed your sin before him, repented, turned to him and surrendered to follow him? If you haven't, you can do that this morning. God is leading you to that place to confess your sin before him. To be resurrected from the spiritual dead. He wants to give life. Jesus Christ died to give you life. Don't deny him this morning. I want you to see not only is our position that we are alive with Christ. Listen, we are raised up and seated with Christ. This is so huge. And he raised us up, verse 6, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, those who are in Christ are no longer in bondage to the devil. In fact, we're triumphant over evil. What God did for Christ in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, look at those verses. Chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What God did for Christ, he also did for believers. This means that the believers share in Christ's resurrection life and his exaltation. And we share in his victory over power of sin and darkness. Do you notice how verse 6 parallels verse 20? Verse 6, look at verse 6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Verse 20, when he raised him, speaking of Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You know what this means for the believer? We talked about it, right? But what does it mean? It means that because we have identified with Christ in his resurrection and his exaltation in Christ, we have a position of superiority and of authority over evil powers. Get this. We no longer live in bondage under the dominion of darkness. 
under the authority of the prince of the power of the air. Right? We've been transferred out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ and under his reigning power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now available to every believer as we live in the midst of this world. It's available to every believer so that we might be able to stand against the devil's schemes, right? Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Right, That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now available to the believer as we live in the world, not only to stand against the devil's schemes, but also to battle the evil spiritual forces through prayer. Look at Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have been given of the Spirit that we might battle the evil spiritual forces through prayer in our own lives and on behalf of one another, but also to put down the old man and to put down the carnal appetites Of the old man. Chapter 4. Verse 22. Right. To put off your old self. Which belongs to your former manner of life. And is corrupt. Through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Right. Colossians 3. 1 through 3. Romans 12. 2. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God. In true righteousness and holiness. God has raised us up with him and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And Paul praises God's incomparably great power by which he raised Christ from the dead and exalted him above every rule and authority and power and dominion. And then he says, we too have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places and have this very power available in our lives. Church, I want to challenge you And encourage you, believer, I want to challenge you and encourage you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. To walk in such a way that the power of God's spirit is at work in and through our lives. To do spiritual warfare, battle, prayer, praying for one another as Drew exhorted us last week. Praying for our own lives, putting to death the old man, walking in the new See, not only are we alive in Christ positionally, not only have we been raised with Christ and seated in the heavenly places positionally, but get this, believer, we are the display of the wealth of his grace for eternity. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, God's love for man as the masterpiece of his creation, is displayed in the death of Christ for our redemption and salvation. The riches of God's grace have been 
poured out upon us and the kindness of Christ Jesus has been exercised toward us. The immeasurable riches that he speaks about here. They are unfathomable riches of God's grace. They cannot be counted. God's grace is poured out in the lives of his children And God's grace is poured out through the sacrificial work of Christ's death on the cross. He says so that in the coming ages, meaning for all eternity, age after age after age, our salvation is a display of the incomparable riches of His grace. Here's why. Because we were enemies of God. We were children of wrath. We were sons of disobedience. But now, because of the kindness of God in Christ, we are raised from death to life. See, God no longer views us as enemies. In fact, He views us just as He views Christ, His Son. He views us as righteous because of the work that Christ has done. We have been given the righteousness of Christ. This is the richness of God's grace. That he would look upon a sinner such as me, a walking dead man. And he would say that he's going to display the riches of his grace through transforming a guy like me. And moving me from being a son of disobedience to now being a son of God. Church, I want to challenge you to take this gospel message and to share the hope of this message and the hope of God's grace with people in your lives, those whom God has brought into your life who need to hear the hope of the gospel, that he has moved us from spiritual death to spiritual life. You see, salvation is a gracious work of God, freeing us from bondage to death by raising us to life with Christ. Let me ask you this morning, have you been raised to life with Christ? Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you confessed your sin before the Lord Jesus Christ? Has he transformed you? Has he transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? If he has, praise God. If he has, (coughs) tell others about it. If he has, worship him because of the richness of his grace. And if he hasn't, surrender to him this morning. Would you surrender? I'm going to close this in prayer. And I'm going to be down front. We don't always offer an opportunity for you to respond by moving forward. But this morning I want to. If the Lord Jesus Christ has prompted your heart, you know that you've not confessed him before as Lord and you want to surrender your life to him, I want you to know that I'll be down front. And you can do that. You can surrender your life to him. You can come and I can pray with you this morning. Let me pray for us. And you respond as the Lord leads. Our Father, we thank you for the grace that you've given us. We thank you how we see this unmerited grace. We haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. For Lord, we know that we actually deserve death. We were 
dead in our trespasses and sins, that which we have committed against you. But Lord, as creator, you loved us and you displayed your love toward us in Christ as Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us and to give us new life. Thank you for our new position in you, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would strengthen us to be your hands and feet as we live in this world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.